Welcome to a very special series of ESA Explores. On the 31st of March 2021, the European Space Agency opened applications for its first astronaut selection in over a decade. In this series, we delve a bit deeper into the role and the attributes of ESA astronauts with a few of the people who know them best. Along the way, we discover there are so many different opportunities to work in space exploration, and there's no one linear pathway to getting there. We hope you enjoy this journey behind the scenes. I'm Ali Kohler, Stephen Ennis is on the sound desk, and this is ESA Explores. This. Nie. Ato. Seven. Seis. Fünf. Stere. Drei. Dwa. One. Welcome to another episode of our ESA Explores Astronaut Selection podcast series. Now before we dive into this episode, I just want to remind you that time is running out to apply to ESA's astronaut selection. The deadline is the 28th of May, so if you're even thinking about applying, head over to the website esa.int slash yourwaytospace to find out everything you need to know and get your application in. ESA is looking for people from all different backgrounds, so if you meet the minimum requirements, go ahead and apply. An opportunity like this doesn't come around very often. What have you got to lose? Good luck. Now for today's guest. In this episode, we're speaking to Mizbah Raymond Saad. Mizbah has a fascinating job. He's in the astronaut instructor training team. So he's not just training astronauts, he's also training anyone who works in space station operations. But the job didn't just fall into his lap. Keep listening to hear how perseverance really paid off and his advice for anyone who might be considering a career in the space sector. So welcome, Misbah. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, it's a pleasure and honor. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. So I understand that you are involved in astronaut training. Is that correct? Yes. I'm part of the instructor training team right now here. Uh, We do not only do the instructions for the crew, but we also do instructions and simulations for the ground teams as well. Uh, Okay, so it's not just astronauts, it's everybody who might be working on tasks related to the space station. Yeah, ISS operations, whether it's payloads or the flight control teams or uh, anybody else involved, they mostly go through our training, yes. So what would a regular day look like for you then in terms of training? What does your job entail? Oh, a regular day really depends on what kind, uh, what is going on. So, you know, we, there are days when we might have like the, the U.S. Uh, crew or the Russian crew here for training. And those are intense weeks because they are here for short periods. And then we might be doing like system or payload trainings with them. And that is part of the certifications, basically part of the training requirements that they had to do certain trainings on Columbus or certain payloads. So it could be an intense week like that, that you might have a lesson with a crew or going over certain subsystems or payloads. And if it's not that kind of a week, there are also weeks where we do, you know, a certain week of training for the flight control teams. Those are also a bit intense weeks where we have multiple lessons throughout the week and we have multiple weeks like that. So really depending on what is going on, it can be either crew training or basically a training for the flight control teams or the ground support personnel. Or the fun part that I really enjoy is the simulations. 
So we do simulations for our flight control team and the payload operations teams. And that is pretty much the whole day. So we simulate a full day timeline and everybody gets in there and there's a simulator involved and we you know, plan the malfunctions and timeline and we let them play the scenarios. And as a SIM officer or SIM director, you are responsible for putting in different malfunctions and scenarios and see how they respond to that. And then you have to provide an official feedback. And sometimes if it's their certification SIM, you even have to provide them a pass and fail kind of a thing. And I really enjoy uh, the simulations because, you know, I've been off the operations for quite a long time now and I miss it. So when you were in operations, what were you working in? Oh, I worked in operations for almost 10 years. And uh, when I started there at C, I was part of a flight control team that was the systems group at that time. So we were taking care of the Columbus thermal control systems, electrical power distribution systems, and the environment control systems. That group doesn't exist anymore because uh, at some point, I, I don't remember exactly which year it was, uh, they merged the, the systems group with data management group that was there and they made a team called Stratos. And uh, when the transition happened at that time, I was mostly involved in the training. And then when the transition was going on, I was supposed to certify as Stratos, but then I was picked up as a flight director candidate. And then I moved to the flight director team and I finished with the flight director team in 2018. All right. Can you explain to me, so the Stratos or the systems operations team, so they are controlling all the systems on the Columbus Laboratory while it's in orbit. Is that right? I mean, the systems are pretty autonomous. Uh, but if there is anything that goes wrong or if there are any activities related to that, because we keep doing a lot of activities like preventive maintenance or there is other kind of maintenance activities. So if there is anything going on related to that subsystem, it's your group that is responsible for it, you know, working on the procedures for it, working for timelines and uh, working for any kind of crew activity support. All of these things will uh, go to that group. Mm-hmm. And then as a flight director, what would your role be? Oh, so flight director, you have a more overall responsibility for the operations of Columbus. So you are not responsible for a particular subsystem, but you are overall responsible for the whole whole operations for the Columbus. So you are responsible to make sure that the overall system runs, that you are planning the things properly, that you are responsible for the safety of the crew, for the safety of the Columbus module. Uh, so you have to make your responsibilities change in that sense. And, and then, of course, you are directing the whole team. So then there are the different payload people, different subsystem people, all the other teams that are involved in operations. You are coordinating all of them when you are on console. And off console, you also have a lot of tasks uh, because the flight directors are then responsible for managing many of the offline processes as well. Like things like, you know, you have flight rules or the the operation interface procedures, all these things, then there are flight directors who are assigned to these things and they are leading these teams for this kind of work. Aha, uh-huh. so you'd have quite a lot of knowledge then. You'd be in a good position to be able to now train people in how to deal with these different situations as you would have encountered a few. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that is uh, what I hope uh, that I could reflect that in my training, the experience that I have. Being on console for that long, you have seen multiple things and uh, funny scenarios. 
So you you gain certain uh, perspective on those things, and uh, you want to you know part that uh, to the new trainees that are just starting their path. So what kind of uh, curveball might you throw at these trainees during your training? What what malfunction might happen? These, I mean. It really depends on uh, which position you're concentrating on because uh, you have uh, different people following different teams. So if you are like observing a Stratos or you're planning a simulation for Stratos, it will be a little bit different than when you are planning something for a payload. One of the main things that we want to make sure is that they are able to deal with the emergency scenarios. So in every sim, we will end up and with a emergency scenario where we, we run the whole scenario and we want to see how they respond to it and if they know their procedures, if they know the right ways to communicate to different teams, and they know basically what their role is in it. So apart from that, we take like do like all kinds of failures, we play with them. I mean, it sounds like you're conducting training fairly frequently. So how much training is involved in, in being a member of these teams? At the time, like when I was certifying for systems, it will take us roughly an year and a half, a uh, year, so like 12 to 18 months to certify fully. Uh, it really depends because, you know, we, we don't have a lot of simulation slots and you need certain amount of simulations to certify. So depending on when you get those certification, those uh, simulations, uh, it could be quick or it could be later. Uh, for flight directors, we generally pick people who have already console experience. So we will pick people from the teams that are already done doing operations. And for those uh, certifications, it might go quick. So it might be like six months because they basically know everything. Now all they have to do is just do it from a different perspective. So that might take like maybe six months or less or more, something wrong about that. For payload operations, I'm not 100% sure how much time they need, but I will guess it will be something on the same scale, basically six months to a year or something. Okay. And when you say payloads, that's experiments or technology demonstrations, or what is payload exactly? When we talk about payloads, there is a difference between a payload and an experiment at some level because uh, we call payloads basically the hardware. And then you can run different experiments in that hardware. So let's say if I have a payload that's called Biolab, then Biolab might be able to run multiple experiments that are related to that particular area, let's say. When we say payloads, you are certifying somebody for, let's say, Biolab operations, and later on, they might have different experiments that are going on in the Biolab. So it's more like a facility certification, and then it might be that they do different experiments, and that might require separate certifications. So at the moment, with COVID over the past year, has that changed your training? Our payload operation centers, or as we call them, USOC, so user support operation centers, they are anyways all over the Europe. So you have some in Germany, in Switzerland, or in uh, Toulouse, in France, or in Belgium. So we are anyway separated. But uh, what used to happen is that when you get hired for that job, you will come to EAC to do your first block of training. So you will get here one week and one week we will teach you about the systems. Uh, one week you will come here and we will talk to you about uh, payloads. And then you will come here for three weeks for general operations trainings. And once that is all done, you go back to your teams and you develop your system matter expertise. And when you are ready with that, you go for the simulations, which is kind of like your final certification path. And now with this COVID thing, the major issue has been that we couldn't do the trainings in-house. 
So we had to modify most of our training uh, to see what we can do remotely and what things we cannot do remotely. So we had to do all that assessment. But I think we have been pretty successful in implementing like pretty much all the training now in the remotely. But of course, many of the exercises that really required you to be in the control room with the loops and practicing, some of those exercises were just not possible to do. On the crew training side, we still kept having the crews here. The major change was that everybody had to do the COVID test before you do any of the lessons with the crew face-to-face. Yeah, right. You have to be very careful. So do you think with developing some of this remote training, do you think that'll be kept post-COVID or incorporated more strongly? Or do you think it really does need to be face-to-face in the future? Yeah, I mean, that is something that uh, we will have to really look back and do an assessment on. I'm pretty sure that certain parts of it will go remote. But one other aspect really is when I was going through my training in the early days, I mean, the people I did those training with, we were like for five, six weeks in Cologne. I made some of my best friends at that time in the operations, and we are still good friends. And I think that is also one of the aspects that you really have to see because, you know, we are all in remote centers. We are at EAC, some flight control team members, some are at CCC, and then all the USOC people spread out. And the training was one period when you really got together with certain people and had a chance to talk, you know, go for socials, get to really know each other. Yeah, absolutely. I think that personal connection and those in-person relationships are really valuable, especially when you're having to work together in a a high-stress situation, I imagine. Knowing the other person or having met the other person might make all the difference. Oh, absolutely. It makes a huge difference, yeah. And so in terms of the people who are taking on these roles, What would their backgrounds be? Is is it engineering or is it something else in the space industry? Where do people come from to become Stratos or a a flight director generally? I mean, honestly, I have seen people from all kinds of backgrounds. Like we have had physicists, we had had biologists and, uh, you know, we we had people from all kinds of backgrounds. If we have to pick one, which is uh, maybe the most common will be certainly engineering background. But there have been people from all kinds of backgrounds who are here, who are still here and, uh, you know, doing a really good job. And being an engineer also doesn't really make it uh, you are going to become a good flight controller. Because I, I think for flight controller, you need something which is, a, which is really not uh, education. You can't really, you know, look at an education of a person and say he's going to do a good operations. I think there is just a different skill set required for operations. And you find that out when you are doing the simulations and when you are interacting with them. I think it's just a bit of a different personality uh, that you need. And we have seen some really, you know, like PhDs and postdocs who were not really good flight controllers or who could not certify on uh, console operations. And sometimes you have people from uh, completely different backgrounds who are really good at operations and they really make it. Especially when you talk about payload operations, because, you know, all these payloads are so different. Some are biology, some are physics, some are something. So they also require those expertise. And I've seen some really smart, very good people on these positions with the postdocs and stuff. So when you talk about it, um, perhaps not being so much education, but being a particular skill set or a particular personality, what can you put your finger on what those qualities might be or what some of those qualities might be that are an important part of this role? I think uh, 
One of the things is that you need to be really good at understanding complex situations and then uh, having an ability to assimilate a lot of information because some people get overwhelmed. Uh, because, you know, when you're sitting on the console and you're looking at telemetry, there are thousands and thousands of items. And if something starts going wrong, there could be so many reasons. So one of the things that really makes a difference is your ability to think clearly and, you know, assess the information and come to what needs to be done. Because if you get overwhelmed and you don't know, uh, you might know what needs to be done, but you are unable to communicate that and unable to convince other person that you, you know uh, what you're talking about, it becomes very, very difficult. So communications, quick thinking, these are the kind of qualities that you need. And communication is really huge because you are uh, interacting with so many people and you don't even see all of these people. You are just on the loops. So if your communication skills are not there, it can become really, really difficult. No matter how good you are in the system matter expertise, if you really can't communicate properly and clearly, that is uh, one of the big, big problems. So I would say communication, situational awareness, and uh, being able to assimilate information and you know decide on the next steps, being proactive. These are the kind of qualities that really make a difference. You know, these are the kind of qualities that I've just read in our astronaut selection criteria. They sound quite similar. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pity that we never had like flight controllers, uh, you know, being selected as astronauts. <laughs> yeah, never say never. <laughs> it's coming up. <laughs> yeah, it's coming up. And I know a few people who want to apply. So good luck to them. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to see. And when you, were, when you talk about um, crew training, just to go back to that as well, what is your role in training crew? We mostly train them on the subsystems and on the payloads. Like for me, I am one of the instructors on the data management system. So I'm responsible for delivering the lessons on the data management system, whether it's a user level or a specialist level. Then I'm also an instructor on the life support rack. So I'm responsible for training them, whether it's a user level or specialist level. So you have different lessons uh, based on what the roles they will have. And it is our job to make sure uh, that they understand the concepts and they are proficient. So when they interact these systems, in uh, when they are on board, they are comfortable with it. Okay. That makes sense. And can I ask for yourself personally, we've talked a bit about backgrounds and where people might come to, to come into these roles. How did you come to be involved with ESA and come to be involved with CC and move from there? It's a funny story, honestly. I mean, <laughs> uh, for me, I was uh, doing a course called Space Masters. It was an initiative from the European Union. I think that they started this course with multiple universities involved. In this course, I was like six months in Germany. I went, spent six months in Sweden, and then I was doing one year in Finland. After finish of that course, uh, we were applying for jobs. You know, I mean, the, the course was finishing. We were looking for jobs, and there wasn't a lot of scope for this kind of a qualification to go back to India. So I was applying for jobs in Europe, and one of the first applications I submitted was to a company that was operating at Colsusi at that time and was working in the different areas of Colsusi, the grounds and the flight operations and the engineering systems. Uh, so I applied to them, and uh, the person responded to me and uh, immediately, pretty much, and said, hey, you know, we are looking for somebody for flight control team for Columbus operations, and that was, I think, 2007 at that time, the Columbus was going to launch. So I was like, wow, I mean, this is yeah. amazing. You know, I mean, I was like, Ooh, sign me up. So I'm like, okay, done. And I was so happy. And, you know, I, I was like, okay, no more applications anywhere. This is done. 
And then, uh, you know, 15 days later, I got an email from the same person and he was like, oh, you know what? We got somebody from NASA side who has the NASA experience and that is a better fit uh, for us. So I'm very sorry, but uh, I think we will have to drop this and, you know, good luck for your future. Oh, no. (laughs) So what I did was, uh, you know, I wrote to that person back and I told him like, hey, it's brilliant for you. And I'm very happy that you found the most experienced person for the job. But, you know, I mean, this is not fair for people who are starting, you know, I mean, if uh, you keep hiring experienced people, then where do the people, you know, who are starting fresh get their opportunities? So I said, I'm still available and I'm ready to do anything else, whatever you might have that will give us an opportunity to, you know, assess each other. We should look at other options as well. So he replied back and he said, "Okay, you know, fair enough. I will give you an internship for software programming or something. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Okay, fair enough. Let's start with that. Because by that time, I was so invested in that thing and, uh, you know, I wasn't applying for anything. So I was uh, I was uh, a little bit disappointed. But anyways, he gave me the opportunity to his credit. So I moved to Munich. Uh, I moved to Kolsisi. I was not part of the flight control team, but I was working on a software. You know, that's a typical expectation of Indian people, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, work on the software. <laughs> so I started there. And then what happens is like three months down, the person from the NASA thing doesn't work out and they are looking for somebody. And uh, my boss comes and asks me the same thing again. Is like, okay, you know, you're still interested in that. And I say, absolutely. And uh, then I was part of the Colsa C flight control team. Fantastic. That is such a great story. It's a good example of perseverance paying off. So yeah. And I mean, I imagine that's advice you'd give to perhaps somebody else who might be considering a career in the space industry that that's your passion. and that's what you want to do, then follow it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And because, you know, being part of my Colsusi for that long, I saw it because I was the line manager for the flight control team in my company. So we used to do a lot of hiring whenever there were positions open. And it was so amazing to see that there were people uh, who were so passionate about it and it didn't work out for them. But they kept in touch and they kept asking and they kept looking for it. And then, you know, it worked out with them maybe two years later or something. So I absolutely believe in that, that if you really, really want something and you really are invested in it, I mean, that thing is going to come true. That thing is going to come true for you. You just need patience sometimes a little bit. Wonderful. I think that's a good positive note to wrap it up on. So thanks very much, Ms. Beth. Was there anything else that you wanted to add today? No, uh, it, it was wonderful talking to you. And I think, you know, it's such a opportunity for us to work in human space flights. And I'm very, very grateful for my managers until now that kept giving me uh, the next opportunities to progress and still stay in the same area. So I just will say the same thing is that, you know, if you really want it and you're working for it, keep your patience and keep trying. And I'm sure your dreams are going to come true as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. To find out more about ESA's 2021 astronaut selection, visit the website esa.int slash yourwaytospace. That's your way to space. Thanks for listening to ESA Explores. If you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes of the podcast, don't hesitate to get in touch via Twitter at ESA Spaceflight using the hashtag ESA Explores.